a welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and will be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to Shauna Giddings and Chris Cole as guests on today's podcast, recording on the 28th of September 2021 in the wake of party conference season and worries over fuel and gas supplies. Today's focus is going to be on SIPs and the FSES following a recent pension ombudsman's decision in the SIP area and a high court judicial review involving the FSES. But before I turn to Shauna and Chris to take us through those topics, it's worth also briefly covering some other topics as particular highlights for listeners this month. So first of all, we had the FCA deciding against a redress scheme for former members of the British Steel Pension Scheme, seemingly opting instead for encouraging members to make complaints to the Financial Ombudsman Service having held a meeting with British Steel members earlier in the month. Also in the defined benefit area, we had new guidance on how firms should compensate complainants who had been subject to unsuitable defined benefit transfer advice. We also had some meat on the bones when it comes to the FCA's future approach to regulating principal firms for the oversight of their appointed representatives, or ARs. Having been told that this was going to be a focus in the FCA's business plan, we had this month changes to the AR notification process and also some commentary around the FCA's plan to focus on high-risk principles and increase its scrutiny of firms when they appoint ARs. The Pensions Regulator and the Financial Conduct Authority also published a joint paper on driving value for money in defined contribution pensions with a focus on the accumulation phase. And we also had a very quick U-turn from the FCA when it came to the FSCS levy. First of all, announcing a 10% reduction, then quickly retracting the very same. So with autumn now here, September has been quite again an active month in the financial services area. We've also had a pension ombudsman decision, as I mentioned, in the SIP area. So Shauna, before we dive into that decision, can you set out for listeners what a SIP is? Yes, certainly. A SIP stands for a self-invested personal pension. So it was implemented by the Finance Act in 1989, and it was to reflect the government's intention to allow customers greater choice over their pension funds. SIPs were initially regulated by HMRC until April 2007, and they permitted investments in a wide range of products, with the key exception being residential property. The advantage of a SIP is that there is no tax on the investment or the capital gains made within the SIP wrapper. And most SIPs today operate with at least two entities. Firstly, a regulated FCA entity, which operates the SIP, And secondly, a trustee entity, which holds the assets within the SIP as a bare trustee. And usually that entity is not FCA regulated. 
Some SIP providers also operate with a third entity, which administers the SIP. Entities within the SIP structure are not regulated to provide investment advice, and as a result, SIP providers are not authorised to comment on the suitability of an investment for an individual customer. This means that SIP providers normally have contractual arrangements in place where they agree that the customer or their financial advisor can direct the SIP to make certain investments, albeit the SIP provider retains the rights to veto any given investment. Thanks for that, Shauna. And for those that follow financial services, it often feels a week doesn't go by without something being said about the SIP market. But for those new to it, can you just outline the issues that have been impacting the market? So the main issue that has been prevalent over the last few years is the scope of a SIP provider's duty. Generally speaking, SIP contractual terms provided that SIPs had an obligation to make the investments directed by members, but not to provide advice on the underlying proposed investment as they weren't regulated to do so. However, the FSA and later the FCA had other ideas. A number of publications were released over the period of 2009 to 2013, which imposed various obligations on SIP providers in relation to so-called due diligence on a number of things, such as investments permitted within the SIPs, where business was referred from, and the volume or, or type of business being undertaken. It should be noted, though, SIP investment decisions remained member-directed, and where an IFA was appointed, based on the investment advice provided by the member's financial advisor. The FSA did not expect SIP providers to advise on suitability or to carry out due diligence on investments. So as you said, SIP providers' duties arguably became a lot wider than what their contractual terms provided for. We'll come to the Pension Ombudsman's decision in a minute, but how did FOS seek to square the circle of the regulatory obligations with the contractual terms? So SIP providers have had some difficulty with this in recent years, both with the Financial Ombudsman and also with the courts. In particular, the case against Barclay-Burke. In that case, the complainant, Mr Charlton, opened a SIP with Barclay-Burke in 2011 in order to make an investment in a green oil scheme in Cambodia through sustainable agroenergy. The investment ultimately lost its value due to issues such as fraud surrounding the investment. Mr Charlton complained to the financial ombudsman to seek reimbursement for the sums he had lost as a result of placing his funds in a risky investment. He argued that Barclay Burke, the SIP provider, should have prevented the investment from taking place, in effect, rejecting Mr Charlton's instructions to invest in sustainable agroenergy. The FOS looked at the regulatory publications that I spoke about earlier and considered what due diligence Barclay Burke should have carried out, what they should have done, and what they would have concluded if sufficient due diligence in the eyes of the FOS had been carried out. Amongst other things, the Ombudsman found that Barclay Burke should have identified the investment as high risk and speculative, considered whether it was appropriate for a pension scheme, ensured that the investment was genuine, and ensured that the investment could be independently valued. Barclay Burke sought a judicial review of the FOS decision. However, it was held that the financial ombudsman had not erred when exercising its jurisdiction when setting out the due diligence obligations. Barclay Burke sought and attained permission to appeal the decision, but they were put into administration in September 2019, which was before the Court of Appeal hearing. So you mentioned there, Shauna, that SIP providers have also had some difficulty um, with the courts in recent years. 
Can you just take listeners through how the court has reacted to the issue around SIP provider duties? There has only been one court judgment considering the civil liability of a SIP provider, and that is Adams and Carey, which was discussed in our first podcast. One of the allegations brought against Carey was breach of COBS 2.1.1R, which is the duty to act honestly, fairly and professionally. At first instance, it was held that the SIP provider's contractual terms were a necessary starting point for a consideration of a SIP provider's obligations. The allegation that Kerry Pensions should have refused to set up the SIP was held to be unsustainable and that contractually it was not the role of the SIP provider to ascertain the suitability of an investment. Following Mr Adams' appeal, the Court of Appeal handed down judgment in April of this year. Mr Adams failed in his Cobbs appeal and the Court of Appeal found that the allegation must fail and that Mr Adams might anyway have struggled to overcome the judge's findings that any breach of duty was not causative of loss. So you've kindly taken us through the approach of both FOS and the court when it comes to SIP provider duties. So what happened in the recent pension ombudsman's decision? So before I turn to the facts, it's probably worth explaining that the jurisdiction of the pension ombudsman is to follow the law and not to approach matters on a fair and reasonable basis, which is what the financial ombudsman does. Therefore, we would expect the decision to be somewhat closer to the approach of the court than the financial ombudsman. With that in mind, the complaint in question was brought by Mr. Y against Rowanmore, who are a SIP provider. And Mr. Y was introduced to Rowanmore through his financial advisor, Pacific Life. Mr. Y signed a trust deed, a client agreement and related documents that led to the establishment of his SIP in 2009, into which he transferred his existing pension. Rowanmore then wrote to Mr. Y to confirm that whilst they couldn't advise on the suitability of the investments or the associated risks of those investments, they suggested that he take advice. Mr. Y instead signed a waiver to say that he wouldn't be taking advice and then authorised Rowanmore to use some of the funds to purchase off-plan hotel suites in the Caribbean through Harlequin Resorts. Through 2011 and 2012, Mr. Y contacted Rowanmore to query SIP fees And in 2012, he attempted to sell his investments back to Harlequin. They didn't respond. And in 2015, entered insolvency. And the total value of Mr. Y's investment was reduced to a nominal £1. Mr. Y subsequently made a complaint to the pension ombudsman on a number of bases. The main ones being that Bromore had failed to perform sufficient due diligence on the proposed investment and that there was also a lack of communication. What was the result then before the pension ombudsman and how did they approach their reasoning when it came to their conclusions? In respect of the allegation concerning due diligence, the ombudsman stated that the establishment of Mr Y's SIP predated the 2009 FSA guidance. And at that time, the only obligation on a SIP provider was to assess whether the proposed investment met HMRC requirements, and that was stated in Rowanmore's own contractual terms. Rowanmore's role was therefore to administer the SIP in accordance with Mr Y's instructions, and it was Mr Y's responsibility to select the investment that he considered appropriate based on any advice he had received. Rowanmore wasn't a regulated financial advisor, so they couldn't advise Mr Y on the suitability of his investments. And despite the suggestion that he take advice, he failed to do so. The ombudsman stated that Mr. Y made the investment decisions in conjunction with Pacific Life, which was the advisor that introduced him to Rowanmore. He ignored the warnings from Rowanmore 
about the nature and the investment and indemnified Rowan Moore against any liability in carrying out his instructions. In relation to the allegation concerning lack of communication, Mr. White had stated that Rowan Moore should have provided more information to him before October 2015, which is when the Harlequin investment values were downgraded. The Ombudsman stated that it wasn't Rowan Moore's responsibility to keep a member's investments under review. This was actually Mr. Wise's responsibility. It is also worth noting that the Ombudsman highlighted that the advisor is still an active regulated entity, and therefore Mr. Wise could pursue a claim or complaint against them. A key part of the decision to me appears to be that the investment made by the Rowan Moore SIP predated the first FSA publication on SIP provider duties in 2009. So do you think the outcome may have been different if the investment was later, say in the early 2010s? Interestingly, the Ombudsman states in his decision that the investigation of a number of complaints brought by SIP members were suspended pending the outcome of the Kerry appeal, which would seem to suggest on the COPS issue at least, the date of investment may not make a difference. This is also evidenced by other earlier decisions by the pension ombudsman on similar facts to those in Barclay Burke, where the complaints were also rejected. So where do you think this leaves SIP providers? Well, it remains a bit of a lottery in terms of which ombudsman you get, um, as the jurisdiction of the financial and the pension ombudsman are markedly different. And I, I think that probably contributes a lot to the outcome. Thank you, Shauna. Um, SIPs will no doubt continue to feature on the podcast Um, and it's useful having an update. For listeners, it's also worth probably mentioning that as of the date of this recording, we do not yet know whether the Adams and Carey application for permission to appeal to the Supreme Court has been granted. But as soon as we know, we will let you know either via Money Cupboard podcast or via The Week That Was. So thank you again, Shauna. Now, Chris... You're going to take us through a judicial review decision involving the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, handed down on the 20th of September. So for those new to the area, what is the FSCS and what does it do? Thank you, Rachel. Uh, The FSCS basically operates as a lifeboat scheme for customers who have a complaint against an FCA or PRA regulated entity that has entered into default. For example, through liquidation or other insolvency, and the FSCS effectively will step into the shoes of that defaulting entity and pay out compensation to the affected customers where a legitimate claim can be proven. The FSCS is funded through an annual levy on FSCA and PRA regulated firms, which, as you noted earlier in the podcast, has been a subject of increasing controversy over the years as there has been an increase in the levy more or less year on year. Now, the limits of compensation that the FSCS can pay out to customers has recently increased. In most cases, up to 85000 including for banks, building societies and credit unions. The only lower limit is for long-term care insurance, which is £50,000. So, Chris, what was the judicial review all about and what facts underpinned it? The Caymans in this case are individuals who entered into bond investments with the involvement of a stockbroking firm called Beaufort Securities Limited. The bonds all failed and the claimants sustained significant losses. The claimants had each originally invested with the assistance of different financial service providers in an 
unregulated bond promoted by a firm called Aegeus Power PLC. Now, this was known as the Aegeus Wind Bond, and this had a maturity date in 2024. In January 2015, Aegeus created a new bond called the Aegeus Power Bond, which was an investment in UK wind turbine power. The claimants were sent a marketing document about the power bond and invited, in effect, to convert their wind bond investments into power bond investments on a like-for-like basis. The conversion was to be affected by the claimants authorizing and instructing Beaufort to do so. They all applied for the conversion, signing forms to the latter effect. The conversions were duly executed by Beaufort over the second half of 2015 and early 2016. As part of that process, the claimants were all provided a marketing document by Beaufort as the corporate broker for Aegeus, which contained various risk warnings, which I think it's probably worth selectively quoting from, considering the importance of this document for the judicial review. So the risk warning in that document stated that by receiving this document, you will not be deemed a client or provided with the protections afforded to clients of Beaufort Securities. When distributing this document, Beaufort Securities is not acting for any recipient of this document and will not be responsible for providing advice to any recipient in relation to this document. Accordingly, Beaufort Securities will not be responsible for providing the protections afforded to its clients. This document does not provide individually tailored investment advice and Neither Beaufort Securities nor its advisors, directors, or employees accepts any liability whatsoever in negligence or otherwise for any loss arising from any use of this document. So effectively, they were trying to exclude any potential loss that could be found and stating that they were operating on an execution-only basis. In this case, both the wind and the power bonds were placed into administration in August 2016, and the claimants lost the entire value of their investments. In March 2018, both themselves were placed into a special administration by the High Court in connection with allegations of fraud and money laundering. The claimants say that they would have had a cause of legal action against Beaufort and that they were in effect missold the power bonds. They made an application to the FSCS in 2019, which was accordingly rejected on the basis, among other things, that there's no evidence that Beaufort had been required to access the suitability of the investments for the claimants. There was insufficient indication that Beaufort had been at fault, so the claimants did not have a valid claim against it. So what was the basis on which the individuals were suggesting that the FSCS should be picking up compensation in relation to Beaufort? In their arguments, the claimants said that they were missold the power bonds and they relied upon Cobb's Rule 10.41R1, which is the Conduct of Business Sourcebook, which is issued by the Financial Conduct Authority. Now, that provision says that a firm is not required to ask its clients to provide information or assess the appropriateness of an investment if the service only consists of execution and or the reception and transmission of client orders with or without ancillary services. And it relates to particular financial instruments and is provided at the initiative of the client. And then this is the key bit. The client has been clearly informed 
whether the warning is given in a standardized format or not, that in the provision of this service, the firm is not required to assess the suitability of the instrument or the service provided, and therefore he does not benefit from the protection of the rules on assessing suitability. The claimants say that Beaufort had failed to comply with its regulatory duty under this provision to assess the appropriateness of the power bonds. While it was not in dispute that Beaufort did not in fact make any such assessment, apart from providing the marketing document which I quoted from, the claimant said it was a non-excludable duty to provide further risk warnings. What the claimants effectively were saying was that they had not been provided sufficient warning that the service was an execution-only service. The only information they received was that contained in Beaufort's marketing document. And they say that that by itself did not comply with the requirements of Cobstan. So there's an actual breach. So the complainants were suggesting that there was a legal liability on Beaufort in relation to the marketing material in particular that they had provided. What did the High Court make of it all? The court in assessing whether or not the uh, FSCS had come to a correct decision in declining the claim, basically looked upon two limbs, one of which was the rationality of the FSCS's decision to refuse compensation. And the other was to look at a causation argument. Now, for rationality, the FSCS said that while the marketing document was in fairly broad and general terms, it had been provided to the claimants and it did warn this was not a advised service. Now, the claimant said that this was an irrational decision. The FCS hadn't properly considered the actual wording of the marketing document and that looking at it fairly, it didn't properly warn that this is an execution-only service. Now, the court actually agreed with that assessment. It noted that while there were various risk warnings provided, it wasn't sufficiently clear that it was an execution-only service. However, the court then did look on to the causation section of assessing whether or not the FSCS had come to the correct decision. Now, the difficulty for the claimants in this case is that while the marketing document had persuaded them to move from the wind bond, which they were previously invested in, into the new power bond, both bonds had in the end failed. So the court took the view that while the marketing warnings were not sufficient, they would have lost their money anyway, essentially determining that while the warnings were not sufficient, it hadn't actually caused them any loss. Accordingly, they were not entitled to any compensation from Beaufort on that front. And so their claim to the FCS must therefore fail. So no compensation for the complainants in the case from the FSCS. What wider lessons do you think we can take from the judicial review decision? I think there are two general lessons that we can take from this case. The first is it's a useful reminder of the FSCS's approach when it looks at complaints, that it will use the test of civil liability by assessing duty, breach, causation, and loss when deciding whether or not to make a payment of compensation to a claimant. The other interesting element of this case was it's the first case that we're aware of which has really looked into this COBS 10 provision regarding execution-only services. Now, in this case, they did find that the generic marketing 
documentation did not provide sufficient warning that it was an execution-only service. So it may be of interest to those who are involved with execution-only service claims. Thank you, Chris. That's all very interesting. And on the point of civil liability, it's worth remembering and tying back to Shauna's section on SIPs that the FSES is understood to be paying out on SIP provider complaints. And so that gives a little bit of an insight into the FSES's view, at least, when it comes to assessing whether or not SIP providers have a civil liability for the investments that they permit into their SIPs. Thank you, Chris and Shauna, for joining us this month and join us next month, where we'll be talking about a few further issues affecting the financial services market. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.